Hi, Uni Church. Today's Bible reading is from the book of Mark, chapter 6, verse 30 to verse 52. Uh, it's also on your handout if you got one. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they ran away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran out on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day. So his disciple came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus told them to make all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars, because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw them walking, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out, because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Thanks, Adrian. Well, I wonder, are there any movies that you watched as a kid and then rewatched as an adult and realized that you had completely missed the plot, that it had gone totally over your head? I'm sure that there are, are scenes and in-jokes that you missed. Pixar is famous for this, right? Little jokes here and there for parents that the kids don't even notice. Or maybe, uh, like me, you did this with music. You sang along are blissfully ignorant that the lyrics were wildly inappropriate. If you go back far enough, I'm sure there are whole shows and movies that you watched without understanding what they were about. 
My sister, when she was four years old, she used to love this film called She Wore a Yellow Ribbon. Uh, it's an old school Western about this like aging cavalry officer trying to prevent a war and protect uh, some helpless damsels or something like that. Uh, and she wouldn't have understood any of the plot. She was so young, she just liked watching them ride the horses. I think she saw the movie like a hundred times and it went right over her head. She completely missed the point. In today's reading, we have two dramatic scenes, we have two stressful situations and two astonishing miracles, but at the end we're told that it had gone right over the disciples' heads. They had missed the point. As we look deeper into these two stories, we're going to try and step into the drama to feel the amazement, but they're recorded in Mark not just for drama and amazement, but so that we would understand the meaning and not miss the point. Last week we heard from chapter four uh, about Jesus calming the storm and the response of the disciples. Now we fast forwarded a bit through chapter five. <clears throat> In chapter five, Jesus had cast out demons, he'd healed a bleeding woman, uh, he restored a young girl from death. Also in the intervening time, uh, Jesus has sent the 12 apostles out on their first mission trip, giving them authority uh, to heal, to cast out impure spirits, and to preach that people should repent. So we pick up our story here as the apostles return uh, from their travels and tell Jesus about everything they've done and taught. And uh, they're basically famous now, Jesus Teaching and miracles have been astonishing people all over the region, and then the disciples traveling from town to town teaching and healing has spread the news further. So as they gather back together, they are overwhelmed with people coming and going. They can't even sit down and eat together. But they're near a lake, the Sea of Galilee, so they get in a boat to escape to a solitary place. But their attempt to escape for some peace and quiet fails because the crowd are too eager and Jesus is too compassionate. The crowd, they watch Jesus and the disciples getting into the boat. They make a guess at where they're going and they start running on ahead of them. Jesus' favorite solitary place is now filling up with people. Far from its kind of quiet hillside, now it's like Fed Square on grand final day, which, if you haven't been, looks something like this. Now, I like peace and quiet. I would probably get pretty grumpy if I was chasing peace and quiet and there was a literal crowd chasing me. But Jesus isn't grumpy. Jesus sees the large crowd and has compassion on them. He sees that they're more than an excitable rabble chasing a celebrity. He sees that they're like sheep without a shepherd and he feels for them. He has compassion on them. We get a glimpse here into the heart of Jesus and it's the heart of God for his people. The image of sheep and shepherds is a key image in the Bible for God's people and their leaders. <coughs> it goes back to Moses' time Moses sees himself as a shepherd 
of the flock Israel. And we see this in his concern for the future well-being of the people when he's near the end of his life. Uh, This is from Numbers 27. Moses said to the Lord, may the Lord, the God who gives birth to all things, appoint someone over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. And at that time, the Lord provides Joshua as a shepherd leader after Moses, but as Israel's history continues, the problem of leadership and problem leaders becomes this ongoing source of pain and even sin. Many hundreds of years later in Ezekiel's time, God condemns the leaders of Israel as being like shepherds who have no love for the flock, who are harsh and exploitative. Shepherds who rather than being the ones who protect the flock are now the ones that the flock needs protecting from, rescuing from. And so in Ezekiel chapter 34, we get the most compassionate promise. This is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. I will rescue them, I will gather them, I will tend them, I will search for the lost and bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. I will shepherd the flock with justice. God makes that promise out of compassion for his people and Jesus fulfills it out of compassion for his people. Jesus has come to fill this promise, to fulfill this promise, to be the shepherd who rescues and gathers and loves his sheep, the shepherd who is God himself tending to his people. So then the crowd's eagerness and Jesus' compassion have completely messed up any plans for peace and quiet. And as dusk arrives, a new problem emerges. 5,000 hungry mouths to feed. From verse 35, by this time it was late in the day, so the disciples come to Jesus and say, this is a remote place, a, a quiet, a secluded, wildernessy place, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. It is getting late, the disciples are getting worried. I wonder, do you guys remember the fire Festival scandal in 2017? You might have watched a doco on it, there's one on Netflix. It was this dodgy luxury music festival, or like, well, really fraudulent uh, luxury music festival. <clears throat> a scam artist promoted it and sold tickets to this supposedly glamorous festival on an island in the Bahamas, and when the ticket holders arrived, the musicians had pulled out because they hadn't been paid, the caterers had pulled out because they hadn't been paid, there was very little food or water and disaster tents instead of luxury villas. It was a mad scramble as everyone tried to get out of there as fast as they could. A complete disaster. And a complete disaster not least because there were too many people and not enough food. The disciples in our reading, through no fault of their own, are headed towards a fire festival situation. There are 5,000 people gathered in a remote place. 
they need to be dispersed and hopefully the surrounding villages will be able to feed them. It's a good enough plan to keep things from getting out of control. Yet, Jesus gives his disciples a strange answer. No, don't send them away. You give them something to eat. What? They don't have food for 5,000 people and buying it would cost a fortune. Our uni church dinners here, we get a good deal, $5 per person, 5,000 people, that is $25,000. You give them something to eat. It's a kind of unreasonable, impossible instruction. Even if there was some great deal on salted catfish at Capernaum, buy 1,000, get 500 free. It's unreasonable, impossible instruction from anyone else. The disciples' reaction would probably have been right from anyone else. If I asked Larissa to get me 25K worth of bread and fish, the answer would be, what, no? (laughs) And that's essentially the answer the disciples give to Jesus. But Jesus is not like anyone else. And so just as soon as he's given them this instruction, you give them something to eat. He makes the impossible, unreasonable instruction doable. Now I'm sure your teachers at school and even at uni have told you when you're faced with a difficult problem, break it down. Step one, check how many loaves and fish you have. We have five loaves, two fish. Step two, sit everyone down in manageable groups, about 50 to 100. There's about 100 people in this room, kind of to get the feel for the scale. Okay, step three. Well, Jesus does this step. He takes the loaves and the fish, gives thanks to God the Father, breaks the bread, and gives it to his disciples. Step four, feed 5,000 people. Easy. For the disciples, it seemed like an impossible task, but for Jesus, it is not. And notice how Jesus performs this miracle. Not by clicking his fingers and having food appear for everyone. He uses what they already have, insufficient though it is, and he uses his disciples as they carry out the miracle and feed the crowd. The disciples have good reason to stress about how will we feed these people, but we should also remember that they've just come back from being sent by Jesus to go from town to town, casting out demons, healing the sick, preaching repentance. This is earlier in chapter six, calling the 12 to him, Jesus began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. Then verse 12, they went out and preached that the people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. In that passage, Jesus gives them a seemingly impossible, arguably unreasonable instruction as well. Go cast out demons, go heal lepers, go preach repentance, which is already a big ask. Go call people to see their sin and turn from it. But Jesus gives them what they need to do it. 
He gives them authority, and so they went out and preached that people should repent and drove out many demons and healed many sick people. So when he says to them, you give them something to eat, you feed the crowd, we shouldn't be surprised that then, next, he gives them what they need to do it. This is how Jesus works through his disciples. When he asks them to do something, when he calls them to a task, he gives them what they need to do it. When he asks them to obey his instructions, then he provides for them to obey. This is how Jesus works through his disciples and it's how Jesus works through us. Now Jesus, he isn't asking us to miraculously feed a crowd or to go from town to town casting out evil spirits and performing healings. But for what he does ask us to do, he gives us what we need to do it. He equips and enables us and works through us. You might see this in your life as God calls you to a particular vocation and open doors. Uh, He might call you to a particular place and a visa comes through at the last minute or doesn't come through as he calls you back somewhere. Maybe he calls you to speak to a particular situation and gives you words to say. You might have heard stories like this. Many of you will have stories like this. But in many ways, the biggest way that this works out for us is in the biggest call that Jesus has for each of us, the call to follow him, to trust and obey. Sometimes persevering in obedience and faith may feel like an unreasonable, arguably impossible task from Jesus. As big as the instruction to feed 5,000 people costing more than half a year's wages. Sometimes following Jesus has costs that are bigger than money. But Jesus gives us what we need to fulfill that instruction, to follow and to trust and to obey. Paul puts it well in his letter to the church in Philippi. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is God who begins the work of saving and sanctifying us, the work of bringing us to obedience to Jesus. And it's him who will complete it. It is not impossible for him. So if you feel doubt and distrust creeping in, If you feel sin and temptation creeping in, ask for Jesus' help. There are things in this life that will pull you away from trusting and obeying. Maybe desire for relationships, for approval, for money or comfort and fun. There are good things that will become a stumbling block for trusting and obeying. And we need to pray, we'll need to pray for ourselves and for one another that God will give us what we need to keep going and pray expecting an answer because God will help you to persevere. Jesus has asked you to trust and obey him and he will provide for you to do that. Now we shouldn't move on from this miracle yet because we haven't asked ourselves What does this story tell us about who Jesus is? 
Uh, we know we're opening Mark's gospel so that we can see Jesus clearly, and Mark has written it so that we would know who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Well, this passage, this miracle, it's part of an accumulation of evidence in Mark's gospel that Jesus is the son of God who's God himself. And we've heard the inner thoughts of Jesus in verse 34, that he saw the crowd were like sheep without a shepherd. So now, as he cares and provides for them, teaches and feeds the crowd, he proves his own identity, that he's the true shepherd, that he's the one who will fulfill that promise in Ezekiel 34, that God himself will shepherd his people, will rescue and gather and feed his flock. There's another Old Testament allusion here as well. Actually, there's many, but three times the place where they have gathered is described. (coughs) Verse 34, come with me to a quiet place. Verse 32, uh, that was 31, sorry. 32, come away to a solitary place. And 35, this is a remote place. In our English translation, we get three adjectives, quiet, solitary, remote. Uh, In the Greek, it's the same word, a desolate place, the usual word for a wilderness place. The emphasis on this descriptive word casts our minds back to another miraculous story of bread supplied in wilderness. Bread so important in the collective memory of Israel that some was kept in a jar in the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder for generations to come. The manna, the bread from heaven, provided in the wilderness in Exodus. So why? Why are we being reminded of this story? Well, Mark here, he's drawing a parallel between Jesus and Moses. Moses, the shepherd-like figure of Israel, God's chosen person to rescue, redeem, and lead his people. Moses, who ultimately was pointing us to Jesus all along. But there's another interesting connection between the disciples and Moses. In Numbers 11, we read that the Israelites, not satisfied with just manna, manna, they're craving meat and complaining to Moses. And Moses is troubled, he's stressed, he comes to the Lord to ask, where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me. And he complains that the burden is too heavy looking after all these people. But then the Lord tells Moses, go ask the people to get ready, tomorrow I'll give them meat, and all month, I'll give them meat for a whole month. And this is Moses' response. But Moses said, Here I am among 600,000 men on foot, and you say I'll give them meat for a whole month? Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? Moses worries, there's no way there's enough food. The disciples worry, there's no way there's enough money. But they're foolish to worry because... God is providing. Jesus is not only being paralleled with Moses, the leader, the shepherd, he's being paralleled with God himself, the one who truly provides even in the midst of doubt. 
So then, after everyone's eaten and they've collected 12 basketfuls of loaves, then right away, Jesus sends the disciples off in their boat to head towards Bethsaida, and he stays behind, first to dismiss the crowd and then to pray. Finally, a moment of quiet. After some time, late at night, the disciples are struggling with the oars as winds rage against them, and then shortly before dawn, In the Greek it says the fourth watch of night, which is between 3 and 6 a.m., Jesus begins walking out to them on the water across the lake, despite the waves and gravity. (laughs) Jesus approaches the disciples' boat and they freak out. It's 4 a.m., some ghostly apparition is approaching across the water. Only it wasn't ghostly, it was a grown man. And as they cry out in terror, he speaks, and it's the familiar voice of Jesus. Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And he climbs into the boat, the wind dies down, calm. Again, this is more than a miracle. This is more than a miracle, it is evidence in Jesus' claim that he's God himself, And it's more than a miracle, it's a test, revealing the hearts and the ignorance of the disciples. Firstly, this is evidence in Jesus' claim that he's God himself. We've seen already that Jesus is building this case time and again, and this is no different. Jesus is again displaying his power over nature. We heard from John last week the kind of respect and awe that the disciples had for the sea and the wind. We heard that it is God alone who can tame the waters and then saw Jesus wielding this authority and power as he calmed the storm. And again, we also have a reference to Exodus, uh, to Moses and to Yahweh the Lord. Did you notice this weird phrase in verse 48? He was about to pass them by. It sounds a bit like Jesus was planning to walk right on past, all the way to shore, and then wait for them to catch up while they rode through the night. Straining. But this phrase, it isn't here to imply that Jesus decided last minute to talk to them, only since they were crying out. It's actually a hint that this is a moment of self-revelation, of God revealing himself. Like God passed by Moses at Mount Sinai, revealing his glory and name and compassion. And again, when the Lord revealed his presence to Elijah in 1 Kings 19, he passed by. In the same way, God is revealing himself here in Jesus as Jesus passes by the disciples on a windy night on the Sea of Galilee. Secondly, it's not just a miracle, it's a kind of test. It's not a final exam, it's more of a mid-semester quiz. Uh, Where are the disciples up to? Have they fallen behind on their reading? Are they keeping up? Have they been understanding? Jesus is testing the disciples and revealing their continued ignorance and hard hearts, but he isn't finished with them yet. It's a strange kind of test. Jesus has spent all day teaching, but his disciples aren't tested on the content. The test is about whether they understand who Jesus is. 
Imagine walking into a first-year macroeconomics exam, you've been studying GDP and CPI and the labor market, and you sit down and the exam paper says, who is the first-year macroecon teacher? What do you know about him? Who is he? That would be a weird kind of test, a strange exam. And the test for the disciples is very strange too. Jesus walks towards them late at night, across the lake, they're terrified, then they're amazed, then we hear their verdict, their grade. They had not understood about the loaves, their hearts were hardened. They had not understood yesterday's miracle. They had not understood who Jesus is. They've seen him calm the storm, they've seen him cast out demons and heal the sick, They've cast out demons and healed the sick themselves. They've seen Jesus feed 5,000 people, prove he's the true shepherd, the one who Moses is a shadow of, prove that he's God himself, and yet they don't understand. They're still shocked and amazed that he doesn't sink into the dark waters. But it's not just about understanding. See, they haven't understood because their hearts were hard. This isn't just about what they know or what they've seen. It isn't that they haven't studied. They know the scriptures. They know the one that Israel is waiting for. But there's a problem in their hearts that's keeping them from understanding. Knowing Jesus isn't just about learning about him. It's about trusting him. It's about faith. And ultimately, the solution to a hard heart is a new heart a new self, and that is just what Jesus offers. From 2 Corinthians 5, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. We need to understand Jesus' claim to be God himself, but it's not just understanding, we need to trust him. We need to ask Jesus for a new heart. If you're someone who hasn't put your trust in Jesus yet and you want to, that is awesome. Please talk to someone who can help you to pray, to take that step, to ask Jesus to change your heart. For followers of Jesus, that is what we have done, that is what he's done in us. But there's a continuing challenge to keep our hearts from being hardened. From Hebrews chapter three. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. (coughs) As we seek to trust and obey Jesus, we need to keep helping one another not to trust sin's lies or let our hearts become hardened or sinful or unbelieving. We need to do that by talking to one another, by sharing our doubts and temptations and sins and by encouraging one another daily as brothers and sisters. So not just sharing our doubts and temptations and sins but sharing our trust, our joy, our victories over sin. Friends, we desperately need to understand who Jesus is. We cannot be 
like my sister watching a feature-length film, enjoying the action and the pretty horses, but failing to grasp the plot. Even the disciples can't stay in the place they're in at the end of this chapter, amazed by the drama, but missing the point. Jesus has shown us who he is. Do you believe that he's the same now, worth trusting and obeying every day? Let me pray for us. Jesus, we praise you as the son of God who is God himself. We thank you for bringing us to faith and giving us new hearts. And we ask that you would help us each day to trust and obey and to encourage one another as brothers and sisters in you. In Jesus' name, amen.